Hi, my name is Jim Lewis. And my name is Chris Painter. Welcome to Inside Cyber Diplomacy. Between the two of us, I think we know almost everyone involved in cyber diplomacy. And the idea behind this is really to have frank conversations with those leaders in this area and bring that to the rest of the world, this new area of diplomacy, and talk to these leaders about what's going on. Our plan is that you'll hear things on this podcast that you're not going to hear anywhere else. Frank, not scripted, direct conversations. Hope you like it. I know we will. So please listen in. Today's guest is Ambassador Amandeep Gill, a highly experienced diplomat who came from the Indian Foreign Service, but chaired the first UN body on lethal autonomous weapons, was part of the executive directors of the high-level panel on uh, digital governance that the Secretary General had, deep experience in now working on how you apply AI to some of the big problems we have, like health. So Amandeep, thank you for coming on the show. Tell us what you're doing now. So I'm uh, the CEO of a new initiative called the International Digital Health and Artificial Intelligence Research Collaborative, IDARE. It's been brewing for a while now. In uh, August uh, last year, we entered an incubation phase, so a two-year incubation phase that leads us to a launch in 2022. The idea is to create a kind of new distributed CERN who drive the collaborative development of digital health solutions, research into future benchmarks and standards, rather than each person, each country, each institution doing their own thing and uh, you know just ruining the planet. <laughs> the main word is health, not yeah. digital. I couldn't tell at first, is it digital health, meaning the world, the digital environment, or is it health? aided by AI and digital technologies. You're right. The, the real challenge is health. So it's the digital enabling of addressing that challenge. Cool. What will you also be looking at? I mean, one of the problems, obviously, we've all seen over the last year. I mean, the bright side is that most more countries understand how dependent they are on digital technologies. The bad side is we've seen a lot of problems, intrusions, other things. Is that part of the portfolio is looking at how to deal with the challenges that health providers and vaccine makers and others are facing. Well, sure. So we plan to build a distributed research infrastructure. So where people can pool in data without necessarily aggregating it in one place. And that means uh, we need to pay a lot of attention to security, architectural security by design type of work. And we need to bring uh, different partners across different geographies together. So they need to be able to trust each other, yeah. trust the flow of data, trust the use of algorithms and models. So th this this is very much part of our thinking. In fact, one of my deputies comes with a long experience of cybersecurity and building these kind of collaborative infrastructures for the Human Brain Project. They've had to deal with a lot of cyber attacks in the past. You know, there are, uh, I mean, when you're linking big sets of data servers in Milan to those in London, Berlin, and so on to take care of those things. What are you doing with UNESCO? That's over, Jim. So that was a limited ah. exercise on AI ethics. So they were interested in presenting a recommendation to member states on how to mm -hmm. go from principles to more concrete mechanisms on soft governance. So I worked mm -hmm. with a group of 23 others 
from around the globe to uh, do that. The dilemma I've seen, there's a study by some, I think it's a Norwegian university that found uh, there are 81 different AI ethical frameworks and guidelines. And one thing that they have in common is no one pays any attention to them. <laughs> so that's sort of a question for all of the digital fields that we work in, which is, it's easy to come up with rules. How do you get people to observe them? Yes, absolutely. So I want to focus on the hard part of this. You know, everyone and their mother has done AI principles. Yeah. So how do you kind of land them in a particular context? It's almost like rediscovering the principles in a certain context. So you know that UN Charter is somewhere there. International humanitarian law is there. And, you know, the GG norms are here. So, but in a particular context, you know, how do you rediscover them? How do you flash them up on the screen? And what is the way to engage stakeholders around those principles? Uh, so you need a mechanism, almost a three-part mechanism, where you have the normative framework, including those principles and applicable national law. But you also have a mechanism to engage different stakeholders, from customers and users to you know, government policymakers and so on. And then you need a kind of innovation exchange where you can iterate from the practice because it can't be static. I mean, you can't have one treaty that rules at all. So some kind of a peer-to-peer -peer exchange. Hey, this worked in Manila or that didn't work in Nairobi and this network of researchers exchanges these governance solutions. That's what you're doing in IDAR? Exactly. Right. Ah, cool. That's a, a big point. Is it, it sounds like one of the things you're doing is getting people aware of what the different options and proposed rules out there are, because at least the communities that need to deal with them. I, I thought one of the most depressing <laughs> things I saw or speeches I gave, I talked to the first one time at their annual conference and talked about the GGE norm against uh, attacking certs, and they never heard of it before. <laughs> so, and there the community was meant to protect. So. So this idea of translating what's being said in all these forums to the communities of interest sounds like it's something that would be you know, very valuable. And I think one success for the OEWG was it created a um, deeper awareness of what was agreed to in 2015. But it also, it was really interesting to me, having gone to a few of the meetings, the, the interest and the enthusiasm and the knowledge of states outside the usual suspects, mm -hmm. you know, beyond those who've been at the GGE. And so you had very strong representatives from Africa, from South America, uh, from Southeast Asia, beyond Singapore. Success for the OEWG. So I'm giving a long speech, but there's a question at the end. <laughs> Awareness of existing norms and the creation or the start of a global community of interest on things digital focused around the UN. When you look at that, who do you see as your stakeholders for IDAR? Who are your customers? Who, who do you need to involve? So the main customer is the researcher in the LMICs, the low and middle income countries. The people who are researching and developing solutions for health using digital technologies. That's the main focus. But it's also the entrepreneur who's taking the science, taking the, the solution to the market. And it's also the regulator who's trying to kind of not stifle innovation, but still make sure that people's privacy is not compromised, you know, their health and safety is not trampled upon. So it's uh, these deciders, these uh, makers and developers. So that's our, in the LMICs, uh, essentially. 
there is, of course, you know, there was an old era of development where you had development aid. It flowed from the north to the south. Similarly, knowledge making, you know, the big universities did the research, Oxford, MIT, Harvard, and they, you know, you took the HIV AIDS solution to Africa, to Southern Asia. Uh, now it's a more complicated world. So we want to kind of do away and using the SDGs framework where you don't talk of developing countries or developed countries. We all have a climate change problem. We all have mm -hmm. a health systems resilience problem. So you bring together people on a more or less level playing field, south-south uh, cooperation, south-north-south cooperation. And we see a lot of interest in the transformation potential of digital. Uh, people are scared of digital, you know, jobs will go away, privacy will be compromised. You know, there, there is a lot of scare talk as well, but in the global south, you see a lot of interest using it for transformation, leapfrogging. They say we missed the first revolution, second industrial revolution, third industrial revolution. We don't want to miss the fourth one. So how can we get it right? I've heard that expressed in some countries, even in India, I've heard that expressed. We're not going to miss the next chance and we want to make sure we're, we're there. So what's the scale of this operation? How many, you know, you said, talked about regionally, how many participants, how many countries or regions do you think are going to be involved? Or is this going to be something you're going to scale up over time? So the approach we are taking to scaling is essentially through a set of exploratory domains called pathfinders and through a set of centers of excellence. Uh, we call them regional hubs. So currently we have six hubs in Singapore, uh, New Delhi, Nairobi, Tunis, uh, Geneva, Santiago, and we're building three more this year. So these are kind of, you know, places where mm -hmm. network researchers across domains come together and work on these exploratory domains. And we plan to land a scientific agenda for the future by the time of launch through this exploratory work. So there's no assumption that, you know, this is what the world must do. Here is my theory of change and take it. So we will bring this kind of exploration to the launch come up with an agenda, the blueprint for building interoperable, secure digital infrastructures for enabling the research kind of, you know, methodology for distributed governance of data and AI development. So the scaling happens through this kind of an approach and a critical enabler of scaling would be funding. So we're building a case for an impact fund, a replenishment, a rolling replenishment of circa 1.5 billion US. So when we come to uh, launch, we will start developing this impact fund into this rolling replenishment, which will then invest into one, the research question. So what is the next generation of human-centered benchmarks for AI algorithms and moving away from the current focus on technocentric benchmarks? Then what kind of a future pandemic surveillance scheme that's digitally enabled you know, so investments into those kind of research questions, also into some of the core infrastructure. So this RI, as we call it, research infrastructure. I mean, in CERN, you have it all in one place. I mean, there are centers where data flows and uh, secondary research is done, but the infrastructure is all concentrated in one place. Can we do a distributed version of that? So that's the second area for investments. And the third one is around capacity development. So human capacity development. So through that, hope to kind of scale to cover 2% of the planet's population 
with the footprint of these well-governed, inclusively developed digital health solutions. So that's the target in terms of scale. And we wish you luck with that. I know fundraising is easier said than done. It's a hard issue. Uh, trying to do that for our GFC, our global capacity building organization, which is another area. And you mentioned capacity. So I do think this is an important area in the future. Jim, should we turn to uh, his past exploits? Before we do that, you said human-centric versus technocentric. Give us an example for AI. And let's go back to the your career at the UN, for better or for worse. But <laughs> tell us about human-centric. Right. So today, let's say you have an algorithm that performs a task, and then you uh, measure its uh, effectiveness, its efficacy, with technical benchmark data set. So you use area under the curve. And there is a kind of, you know, this arms race on the area under the curve. Uh, but tomorrow you want to know whether it really works to improve the health of an individual. And there it is the patient reported outcomes that really should start mattering. So we are looking at a set of benchmarks where you bring in micro narratives, qualitative data that comes together with the quantitative data to inform a new generation of benchmarks. I mean, it's easier said than done because we are still struggling with, you know, whether it's GPT-3 or, you know, the latest NLP techniques to make sense of text and spoken words. I mean, Google does a decent job, Siri does a decent job, but, you know, it, here we are talking about scientific benchmarks. So we need to really work hard on, on this. And we did some experimentation with micro-narratives as proxy variables. So in the low and middle income countries, there's missing data you have some things you can plug in straight into a model, other stuff where the numbers are not there. So can you kind of substitute micro narratives for those missing data sets? And, and that gave us some confidence in pursuing this further. So this is an example of a kind of a human center. You know, the philosophy here is the moment you reduce anything to just numbers, you block it off for human beings because we are kind of, you know, we like to tell stories around a barbecue, you know, around old days, the campfire or the fire outside the cave. As soon as, you know, we started talking, we started sharing kind of these snippets of stories. I mean, that's how we reconnected in a sense. That's a very human thing. So mm. this kind of, a, and it, in a sense, it turns this harsh kind of blue light lit AI into more of a soft, humanly acceptable, integrable kind of a technology. Mm. Maybe a transitional question then. You've brought up the SDG a couple of times. To what extent is the SDG becoming a, this, are they becoming a framework for action, uh, particularly on the digital side? And so I feel I had a favorite, I can't remember if it was 17 or something, but you know, where do the SDGs and the whole UN fit into what you're trying to do? And then we can talk about your experience there. That's a great question, Jim. Because if you look back at the MDGs, there was no mention of digital. If you look at the SDGs, so we're talking 2015, even there, digital comes in in the context of connectivity. Yeah. Uh, let's improve connectivity, <laughs> development will improve. And there are people who said, you know, this might have been the 18th SDG, et cetera, et cetera, but, you know, it never really worked. So we are still in transition from a kind of ICT-driven development paradigm to more of a digitally enabled development paradigm. 
where you see digital not as problem solving, you know, I will solve the uh, water scarcity problem by putting a lot of sensors all over the place and use the inter internet of things to no, 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 no. But this is like, I will use digital to address my old analog problems by rewiring collaboration, by bringing people together, re-architecturing the whole way of addressing that problem. This is something that's coming out of uh, some places in China, India, Africa. You know, you see some snippets here and there, but I don't think the UN system has kind of mainstreamed this yet. Really? Because yeah. the Secretary General seems to have become a digital convert. Well, just on Jim's point too, I mean, I agree with you in that I don't think it's really been mainstreamed, even though the Secretary General is talking about it. We pushed pretty hard a number of other you know countries did and other stakeholders did in the OEWG to have them say things like, you know, not just digital, but you know, even cybersecurity should be incorporated as an underlying kind of cross-cutting part of the development goals. Uh, and there was resistance to that because a number of countries said, well, we're afraid it's going to take away from the priority of those goals themselves, where I think I look at both digital and cybersecurity as underlying enablers of all those, but there still seems to be a lot of resistance because there's not that level of understanding. I think the SG himself gets it. So he's exercised a lot of leadership on this, but to what extent have, you know, these are long-standing programs and paradigms. So they it takes time to shift them. There are a few countries that are acting as pioneers, you know, Estonia, Singapore, Kenya, India. Uh, so they've been kind of bringing these stories to UN forums. I think the shift has happened, but we need more success stories. Uh, we need more show and tell. So idea is about show and tell in the health space. And you could do the same in respect of climate change, the circular economy, using data today, you can turn around development finance. In a sense, the fractional ownership of assets is something that we couldn't figure out earlier. But today with DLTs, you can do that. And uh, rickshaw puller in Dhaka could say, you know, I own a piece of this flyover, new flyover that cuts my commute or whatever by so many. I mean, it may be a small amount, but, you know, you can, there are opportunities with digital that we haven't yet. How did you get into this? Was it your chairmanship of the GGE on lethal autonomous weapons? Is that, is that like a conversion experience that made you decide AI was the way to go in the future or, or what? I was waiting for you to say the word analog, by the way, so I'm happy you, you did. Jim, I don't know if you know, I started life as an engineer making I do. boxes. An electrical engineer, right? Yeah, so the, these pieces of machinery, I think we were a licensee of Granger Corporation of America. So they made the analog exchanges talk to the new digital exchanges. So this kind of experience with the GGE and then with the UNSG's panel, high-level panel on digital cooperation, kind of, you know, gave me some distance from the earlier nerdish role as an arms control disarmament. They're not all nerds. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we turn to the high-level panel maybe for a few moments? You know, I remember early on you were you were talking to folks, going out, doing a lot of uh, outreach to various communities, asking, you know, how this should go, how this should be shaped. I guess this is an overall question. Did it turn out the way you thought it should? Do you think that it's gotten the traction that it needs? I have lots of other questions. I'm sure Jim does, but, but what's your overall assessment? I think it got good traction. The report is speaks for itself. You know, it's been analyzed, quoted, talked about. 
And I, I think it started something in New York and in Geneva. I mean, IDEA is one example, but there's also GIGA, which is this school connectivity initiative, the Norwegian-led digital public goods initiative. So it's, it's kind of, you know, it's had an impact. And more can still be done. There is the roadmap that the Secretary General has come out with, uh, the post of the technology envoy. So this could kind of formalize, institutionalize the digital dimension of the UN's work going forward. But I think we need more initiatives, more show and tell stories. Uh, so, How would you accelerate the awareness in existing bodies like the UN that this is now becoming, I think I'm actually quoting the Secretary General here, it's becoming the center of international activity and business. What would you do to accelerate uh, awareness or thinking digitally? I think COVID has been a great advertisement for digital and where would we be without Zoom calls and WebEx and all of that? And the net didn't break down. I mean, usage went up tremendously. It held up. So I think there was a great advertisement for the digital backbone that holds up, holds all this together. And then the, the potential of telemedicine, of modeling. I mean, everyone became a data scientist overnight. You know, people looking <laughs> at curves and... <laughs> So you, you saw that potential as well of, you know, planning and anticipating, uh, estimating the burden on the health system. So I think that's been another great. And third, you know, something that this, the people who are more interested in the science of it. So you wouldn't have had these vaccines so quickly if there hadn't been that digital platform, Gizate, you know, for, for people to upload sequences. These are, you know, kilobyte size files so quickly uploaded and anyone can do it from anywhere. So the democratization of genomic sequencing plus these digital platforms made that possible today. I thought that was a great example of digitally enabled science collaboration. And this is the moment in a sense, but I think uh, the prime time for AI didn't really come. So a lot of people oversold it and a lot of people oversold some other easy solutions, contact tracing, for example, mm-hmm. not realizing that it doesn't work without the analog side. As you, you know, you rightly put the accent on health and not digital. So health is first, even though digital in grammatical terms comes first here. So health is primary. And so here, if you don't have the old fashioned shoe leather epidemiologist at Tracer, I mean, the digital solution is not going to work in supreme isolation. Those who got this right, and and we started by talking about the Israeli vaccination experience. It's happened because they have four decades of experience building up data across these four or five, you know, health providers who have a kind of deep understanding of how digitalization works. The way they looked at the data sharing with uh, Pfizer and others. So that was very few people understand that that can be a bargaining chip as well in terms of vaccine supplies and rollout. Very few people get the logistics side of it. I mean, I see European countries struggling. You know, now, you know, stadiums are being opened up for vaccination, etc. But, you know, some LMICs understood that a simple app could, you know, do wonders for logistics. So those are the kind of, I think, things that I have optimism about that, you know, it'll lead to some deep shifts in the way digital is viewed for enabling the SDGs. I think the other silver lining, as I mentioned before, is that 
I see a lot of governments who before didn't pay attention to the the cybersecurity side paying attention because they become so dependent on these for all the things you, you talked about, that the vulnerabilities are bigger, the risks are bigger if, if, all, if we're depending on all these things. But you know, when we're talking about the the high level panel and the outgrowth of that, including the the digital roadmap, a lot of countries have taken the position of like, look, that set of sessions shouldn't get into the security side. We're already dealing with that in the first committee. We're already dealing with that in other parts of the UN. Is that the right approach? Does that concern you? Or should this really be more of an integrated effort? So that concerns me. And I think it should be an integrated effort. Uh, so it's a baseline enabler. Uh, just like you need that those 18 million health workers that are missing today, you need those three, three and a half million cybersecurity professionals that are missing today. That's baseline work. You know, they will always be bad actors. Uh, they will always be people who feel left out or who just want to mess up things. So you need this kind of baseline enabling of these platforms. And again, you know, in the COVID experience, you've seen some interesting examples. Like the Indian contact tracing app came under a lot of criticism initially because uh, they were, you know, there were some security patches that were not there, etc. So instead of, you know, kind of hiding behind a wall, they, they took the decision to say, okay, we'll put a bounty out there. So here is the source code and please tell us where the vulnerabilities are because we've tried our best, but maybe we missed something. Uh, so that kind of quickly led to an update, which was much more secure than the first version. So I think seeing this as integrated, as enabling, as essential, as routine as possible, rather than you know, being fearful about the securitization of the development agenda. I mean, I grant you that that you know some people may have concerns that you'll take it in a different direction. Similar concerns on the civil nuclear side, that nuclear security, protecting plants against terrorists, uh, bad actors, uh, is securitizing the civil nuclear agenda. I mean, I've heard these concerns before. But eventually, through the NSS process, the initiative that President Obama took, you could socialize people to that idea that, you know, this is essential. It's not about politics of arms control. It's not about, you know, less development and more security. It's about more development, more security. That was a great statement. So I have three questions out of it, but we'll start with an easy one. So what are the international politics of this, where you've got the US-China competition, you have China expanding its role in the UN, you have India asserting itself more on the global stage, you have the EU doing whatever the EU does. What are the international politics of this? When you when you look at it from your, your diplomatic and UN experience, how, are we stuck for a while? And that's the easy question, Jim? Yes. <laughs> so stay tuned. <laughs> no, go ahead. You've had to do this. You actually have hands-on experience. So when you look at this, how do you get these countries and the SDG is a useful framework to at least focus them? What are the politics for making progress internationally? Politics is challenging today and it's going to remain challenging for a while. In fact, things uh, will get perhaps even more challenging. And this geopolitical competition is going to be intense. There are uh, power shifts happening um, and rise of China is one thing uh, that you know people have talked about a lot. Uh, but then these new geometries, 
the Indo-Pacific as a concept, you know, the Quad as a new player. But I think the the wise thing to do would be to put as much of a positive agenda into these initiatives as the Quad leaders, President Biden, Prime Minister Modi, and the leaders of Australia and Japan have done to put a positive agenda. You know, we take COVID vaccines to Southeast Asia, make sure the international rules and norms are respected. So there will be this ferment and it's not going to be easy. But I think the area of cyber security, uh, information security, AI, uh, whether it is um, the AI competition or AI collaboration, uh, this could be, in a sense, you know, the role that nuclear arms control played historically. Mm-hmm. Even though it was bizarre at one level, you know, you were competing and you were building up systems that matched up against each other. But at the same time, it was a kind of a link that kept people talking to each other and then made them realize that, you know, you had to collaborate at some level. So I think digital could be that additional arena. There are those earlier arenas, nuclear space and you know, some countries more than others, Russia and the US need to keep talking about those things. But I think this is a new arena, which can be creatively used to keep up the dialogue and in a sense, have these safe havens where there is collaboration happening, where scientists are able to come together uh, in neutral, trusted settings to kind of do things together. We should use this as an opportunity to give your book a plug. So uh, <laughs> you want to hold it up. <laughs> yeah, I should. It's it's out of range. Well, we but, are an, we are an audio podcast, so I'm not sure it really makes oh, sense. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, too bad. Well, for people who are listening in, I am holding up Nuclear Security Summits of History, which has a very nice cover. <laughs> How useful has it been to be someone who knows the arms control and the nuclear world so well and in approaching these new digital problems? Very helpful, Jim. We've just started presenting the idea of a global pandemic surveillance and response mm-hmm. team that's digitally enabled to partners. And I start talking about it by thinking back to the group of scientific experts and the GSET experiments that accompanied the work on the nuclear test ban treaty. While the politics was being sorted out, this group of scientists met and looked at integrating data. So I'm I'm kind of reinterpreting the mandate of that group. Uh, (laughs) So it was, you know, you had the old-fashioned seismic data. You know, everyone used the S and the P waves to look at Mm -hmm. whether it was just a regular seismic event or a test. And then you integrated these three additional data streams and you designed a neutral data infrastructure, the IDC in Vienna, where the data from these different sensors Mm -hmm. together to kind of inform the world that something was happening. And this was not just, you know, your opinion or my opinion, uh, but it was kind of scientifically based. And uh, since the infrastructure also was neutral and trusted, so people had faith, trust in the outcome. So you couldn't just dismiss it as nonsense. You know, if DPRK tests, you know, you know, it's a test. It's not just anything. And the politics took its time. You know, it finally got worked out to some extent. So the two came together. Now, in this case, uh, we have an existing framework, the international health regulations. We have this new proposal from the European Union and others about a pandemic treaty, because, you know, you want to make sure people are held accountable. They take this seriously. You don't have future 
I mean, it's, it's been a multi-trillion dollar loss and apart from the lives that have been unfortunately lost. So how do you do this? And I think the, the answer is partly science-based and given the digital opportunities, partly uh, digital. You bring together data streams near real time from different sources covering one health in particular, because there is the, the zoonotic side of it, you know, the way we are uh, reducing the living space for animals and you know, other species on this planet. So that's having an impact. So unusual data sources, usual data sources unusually tapped into and a kind of architecture that brings it together in a neutral trusted setting. So you can connect the local to the global and come out with these scientific alerts, which help us improve the quality of our responses at every level without waiting for a decision threshold to be reached at the WHO or some other place. So this kind of analogy from the arms control side is handy in explaining this schema for, uh, of course, countries will do their own stuff. I mean, the US had its own network. So did the Soviet Union. I mean, big players would always do that. So President Biden has announced this new initiative. The Europeans have announced the HERA initiative and others might still do it. But I think we need to kind of couple these different things together into a CERN-like neutral trusted infrastructure, which can be linked to any political outcome. Tomorrow you may have a new pandemic treaty or you may still end up just reinforcing the existing political framework, but you still need the data to speak for itself. Microsoft tried to do that with their their thing in Geneva. I forgot what it's called, but their original thinking, it was create a neutral, trusted source for data. They toyed with attribution. And I think the nuclear model was in the back of their heads, you know, that, that there's key political and technical differences. So it was basically to have a database with contributors that would lead to attribution of major incidents, sort of like a, a neutral body that would be able to do that which Jim and I are kind of smirking at a bit. No, it was a good idea. It just turned out the politics were too hard. So yeah, yeah. why aren't the politics too hard for this? Is it health or, or what? Yeah, because you take it a step at a time. Because there, you know, you're talking about attribution to state actors. And there are consequences. I mean, you look at the IA regime. It's linked to the Security Council. And mm. uh, this is where the analogy with the arms control kind of, you know, fades and you have to treat it as a different issue because you make it too hard and then people will shy away from participating in the scheme because they'll say, look, then you'll blame me. You know, Tomorrow something happens and you'll put sanctions on me. It is about improving the quality of the response locally, nationally, internationally. It's not about straight ex escalation to attribution to a member state of a failure to buy mm -hmm. So it's more about having the data in the first place rather than using that data for the attribution piece. So you have a better picture of what's going on is, is the way you look at it. Exactly. It's not attribution. Really. And I, I sense that's where the Peace Institute really is focusing now, which, which makes some sense. Yeah. Obviously, the title of our podcast is Inside Cyber Diplomacy, which uh, means we're trying to get inside some of the cyber diplomacy issues. But, you know, you, you are unique in the sense that you have a... You know, you have a scientific background, you have an engineering background, you've dealt with a lot of these issues, you have an arms control background. I think one of the things you've talked about is the problem with mainstreaming some of these issues. What would you do, you know, if you if you could call the shots, what would you do to try to get, you know, more diplomats around the world to really understand these issues? Because 
you know, I still think it's a small group of those that, that have any real understanding or delve in these issues. And one of the reasons maybe you can't get the sustainable development goals thought about this way is because most of diplomats are still in a world that's in some ways predates digital. So, so how, do, how do we get them in the game? That's a tough one. And let me attempt to answer it. I think part of it is training and capacity development. So literacy, basic digital literacy, data literacy, cybersecurity literacy. So this has to be just as diplomats are taught about, you know, diplomatic protocol, communications, uh, how to write a decent cable. I think the digital, the technology, emerging technology language has to be learned as well. I mean, you can't operate today without, you know, an international language such as English. So this has to be part of the basic fundamental training. And the institutes from around the world, the foreign service institutes from around the world have to embrace it. They are embracing it, but I think this has to be taken forward. And then I think having a cadre of diplomats who kind of rotate through this, whether it is the security side or the development side or the governance side, the internet governance side. So you need to kind of, just as in the old days, you had that disarmament arms control cadre, you know, you had ACTA in the US, which was a kind of, you know, path-breaking institutional innovation that many other countries copied. And you, uh, later on, when the Rio summits happened, uh, you uh, had, you know, these new climate change kind of domain come up and expertise built around that. You need more, more of that in the digital space. And then I think the second thing I would say is that diplomats need to spend more time with the technology developers and with the industry. Uh, in understanding how this is being done on a day-to-day basis. And the kind of work that Microsoft does on a daily basis, I mean, that's bigger than what most governments do or what you know, Facebook does with, you know, with uh, its algorithms on, on looking at content and the decisions that the Facebook teams make. I mean, for good or bad, I mean, we're not going into that. But those are kind of you know, eye-opening for most diplomats. So there needs to be this kind of a, multi-stakeholder convening or exchange where you learn, aha, uh-huh. I mean, you may have done some theory, you may still know digital, you may have an engineering computer science background, you don't understand what the private sector is doing, how startups are working, how tech is shifting, then you can't be in a position to write the rules for the world, which is what diplomats uh, in the, uh, on a good day do, you know, they sit down and negotiate <laughs> rules of the road. Uh, so I think those two are essential. And then a third piece, if I may, is for the forums where diplomats gather. The secretariats of these forums need to up their game as well, just as member state diplomats need to. The multilateral institutional uh, civil servants diplomats also need to up their game. When both of you have participated in GGEs, OEWGs as experts, so, you know, this it's either through this kind of bringing in the expertise on a day-to-day basis or, you know, recruiting people uh, who are more knowledgeable about these issues. So it, it's no longer a, a kind of, a, you know, something that you can do as a side job. Secretary General raising this at a high level helps get other diplomats who don't deal with these issues in the game more. So, so I think that maybe over time will have an impact, but it's still a pretty small cadre, as you say. Growing with small. As you were talking, though, I was thinking two things. The first, there's a 
history of uh, diplomacy, it's on my bookshelf at work, unfortunately, that says that when the telegraph appeared, diplomats resisted it because it tied them more closely to capitals and getting instructions, which they didn't like. I'm all for not liking instructions. But the second part is I wonder if there's a tension, and you we've touched on this, Diplomacy is ultimately an, an intensely personal and interpersonal skill, right? I think most good diplomats would say that. But that's different from the sort of technology that you're talking about. So is there, is it, you can just say yes or no if this one is too off the wall, but is there some tension between the art of diplomacy and the requirements of digital knowledge that, that will slow it down or be an obstacle. Uh, yes, and the telegraph story kind of repeats itself. I mean, uh, we shifted at one stage in the Indian Foreign Office from a certain way of reporting to a more digitally enabled way of reporting, which kind of flattened the hierarchy a little bit. And you could see that people were uncomfortable with it because it, the information flow was not only more uh, less vertical, but it was, you know, horizontal. Mm -hmm. You know, that was kind of flattening the hierarchy. So people were uncomfortable. Eventually, everyone got used to it. And then came Twitter and social media. I mean, you would spend a lot of time preparing the press communiques and, you know, interministerial discussions around mm -hmm. it. And it'd take a while before. You, and here you are now, you have to be ready to respond almost on the fly. I mean, you may prepare tweets in advance and you may get templates cleared, etc. You know, professional diplomats do all of that. But then, you know, you have to be more nimble on your feet. Mm. And that kind of raises the bar for the human resource, both in terms of training, selection, retraining, etc. Uh, so I think diplomacy as an art uh, would still be needed. At the end of the day, humans, as we were talking earlier, you know, they like swapping stories. They like mm. connecting with each other. And some things you only do in a trusted relationship. That art will remain. And, you know, that intuitive sense, the data may tell you a lot, but then the data has been curated by someone. There's an architecture that it has gone into. And there may be some fundamental assumptions there, which, you know, you, which are not explicit. So leaders, diplomatic leaders, political leaders still need that intuitive sense, that human element, art of it to, okay, now this is one path we don't want to go down, no matter what the data is telling you. Human agency over decisions is still still important. And I think this is part of the challenge of learning how to live in a digital age where you know uh, we are constantly reminding ourselves that at the end of the day, it's the analog that really matters. I mean, what makes us get up in the morning, you know, our relationships, our passions, and those kind of things. And diplomacy is very much in that space. You're in Switzerland, so you can do this. What advice would you give to the Biden administration on these topics? And I say that because you can always claim political asylum. If, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and Jim can't. <laughs> Jim and I, I cannot. That's right. So uh, what would you say? I mean, this isn't a criticism of any previous administration. It's just they're working on a digital agenda for the United States to re-engage. You know, India's at the center of it. The EU's at the center of it. We've got the tension with China. What would you say to them? What, what would the focus be? 
I would say be more collaborative. I mean, the administration is already taking a very collaborative approach. That necessarily doesn't mean multilateral approaches because, you know, the, the whole concept is shifting. So it's plurilateralism, minilaterals, uh, uh, multilateral where you can, minilateral where you can't, you know. So just, just collaboration and values-driven collaboration values and of course interests will always play a role but values kind of where interests are fuzzy and you don't know about the future the values become a guiding light you know they they are the intuitive side of collaboration so that's one and the second is i think investing just as i think rightly so the focus is on investing in american infrastructure in resilience and recovery uh, the right recovery, so the green recovery, you know, being respectful of minorities and those who've been left out of the, you know, the growth of the past two decades. Just like that, I think investing in some global pieces, whether it is science or pandemic surveillance or, you know, collaborative development or some things, which kind of fits in with the multilateral collaboration agenda as well. It allows you to kind of work together with the European Union with, you know, with Asia and others, and even where there might be some competitive elements, you know, the relationship with Russia, with China, you know, it's complicated, likely to be for a while. So there again, you know, there's some common ground that you can keep working. So those are the two. And then, you know, in democracies, administrations come and go and elites circulate. I mean, that's the beauty of democracies. Uh, there's this opportunity for renewal, etc. And I think with the US, you've seen, seen it all. And I think there is still tremendous scope for leadership, for leading, but leading in a kind of respectful way, just, which is good to see emerging. And What advice, you know, especially topics, we may not have immunity from this, but uh, what, what advice would you give to the Secretary General in, in keeping this kind of area front and center? It was good that he's made these statements, but, you know, you can't just do something and move on. You have to keep pressure on this. So what would you say to the UN writ large and, and how, how it should engage the world in moving forward on this? I would say that make it work for development. So the advice on good governance, on respecting human rights and not allowing the misuse of digital technologies, show that it works when pursuing development, that there is no either or, that there's no trade-off, the two can go together. The UN is in a unique position to do that. So this show and tell that I was talking about, you know, from this kind of principles-based thinking to more of a practical approach to uh, development 2.0. So essentially, you know, taking the S- digital enabling of the SDGs to a new new wave. It might be uncomfortable for some of the agencies who are used to certain modes of development financing, certain modes of capacity development, but I think this is what leadership is about, you know, pushing people gently across that comfort zone into this new era. One thing I think we've all learned is that development has to be at the center of a lot of the multilateral activities we take, even in, even in security. You have to link it in some way. But, well, as Jim said, I think one of the yeah. things we saw in the OEWG is a lot of the countries around the world who are just getting into this really do need assistance, need capacity building, need to, they want to be in the game. They're not satisfied being on the sidelines and then they shouldn't be. So, so how do we, we do that? Both the U S and the UN, I think have a major role to play in that. 
Yes, and I think just that gap of three, three and a half million cybersecurity professionals. So if you can fill that up in a more diverse manner, more women, more LMICs, the next billion to be connected are largely going to be in Africa and Southern Asia. So their cyber hygiene, their cybersecurity, you know, their assumption of responsibility for cybersecurity. I think that that has to be thought about and the good results of the OEWG can be continued into that because, you know, the game keeps shifting. You know, you have the GGE norms and you know, are they going to be upheld or not? You know, that game keeps shifting. So we can play that politics. But I think if we kind of keep working the garden in that manner, so you can over a period of time channel that game into a more productive arena. Well, and I agree. There's been a good focus on Africa recently by you know, the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise that, that I work with is doing a lot of projects there, regional hubs, uh, funding from Gates and others uh, and, and Microsoft. And I think that's an important area. But also in women and cyber and other things, as you say, I think we need to expand this out. So I think of you as one of the leaders in helping to transition how we think about diplomatic issues to deal with emerging technologies and, and, and digital issues. So um, in that sense, tremendous work. Thank you. Any final thoughts? I'm very happy to see that the GG OEWG parallel tracks kind of worked out. I mean, there was a lot of concern there that it's all going to explode in the end. You know, we'll have a mess, etc. So thank goodness, you know, it worked out. But mm-hmm. this means that the work, the serious work has only just started. So there's a mm-hmm. lot of up and we should all be doing our bit. And I think what you're doing is tremendously helpful in terms of raising awareness, building literacy, and just bringing more diverse voices and perspectives into the debate. Yeah, Mandeepa, it was great seeing you. Yeah, I think it's been incredibly valuable. And I really do think you have a unique perspective of bringing these two communities together, the, the digital community and yeah. the diplomacy community. So, so thank you for all the work you've done. My pleasure and keep well, and thank you so much. Thanks. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of the Cybersecurity Agency of Singapore and the Estonian Ministry of Foreign Affairs.